0: Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. Thank you for joining us to worship and learn more about God as we all pursue Him together as a community. For more podcasts and services about past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendecator.org. or come connect with us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. Now, enjoy the message. are you well good morning everyone my name is Jeff if we haven't met or maybe you have really bad short-term memory my name is Jeff and I'm one of the leaders here at the church and it's my work today to lead us in our time of Bible study together so so John read the passage that we're going to work through I will tell you in advance that we're going to work through this passage just with a little different vantage point I mean there's so many things in Scripture can be taught in so many different ways which is really why the Bible is called meditation literature. It's it's something that you sort of read, you think about, you consider. And have you ever gone back and read something that you read maybe two years ago or even a month prior and you read it again and it seems like with fresh eyes it feels and reads a little different? Anyone? Anyone? Raise your hand and then I'll move on. Thank you. Well done. Yeah, that's kind of what this is. This, this literature is like that. And so today's... Um, uh, a passage is a real popular passage—the uh, transfiguration of Jesus—and but we're going to look at it just a, a little bit differently. So, with your permission, is that okay? <laughs> I'm not afraid of you. I'm just telling you. All right. In in the last few decades, we have seen our society go through dramatic change. If you're old like me, you would say amen to that. We now move our homes more often than ever before. My parents kept the same house. Um, from the time that I was born to almost 30 years later, they finally moved. And they moved into a neighborhood close to me, so I was happy that they moved. But we move more than we um, ever have before. We change jobs more than we ever have before. Unlike the generations before who worked mostly for a single employer for their entire career, a lot of people change. And, of course, we've been told that this is necessary to climb the corporate ladder or the ladder of success And we're also in our society living with the technology that has profoundly changed how we interact with each other, how we talk to each other. No longer does a person have to work hard to find the schedule of their favorite server at the Mexican restaurant and then visit that restaurant every Wednesday night when they work. And in hope that they would sit down after they get off of work and have a conversation with you until they finally see how amazing you are, until they find out how funny and cute you are and eventually fall in love with you. Hypothetically speaking, of course, this is the story of my wife and I. I found out she worked at Carlos O'Kelly's. Woo-woo! And um, some call it stalking, some call it romance. (laughs) Tomato, tomato at this point. I don't know. But I'm married, and 28 years later, and I married up. We know that. So anyways, um, either way, now all we do is swipe right. How lazy of you. (laughs) Robin Dunbar is a British anthropologist, and he's found that, that humans have a limit to the number of people they can have true relationships with. It averages to be around 150 people. And history will tell us that this 150 number is actually the average size of English villages. When they go back and do archaeological work, they find that the most villages capped out at 150 people. And some today even argue this is the ideal size for churches, for small groups, for military units even. Our military caps groups size about 150. Dunbar describes this idea of only having... um, So many intimate relationships this way. So I want you to imagine with me um, of some concentric circles moving towards the middle. Just imagine like a bullseye target in, in your mind, if you will. On the outside ring of the bullseye, these are what we call the acquaintances in our lives. There's 500 people or more. These are people you might know through work or maybe through school. And then you move into the next circle, which is the 150 friends that Dunbar talks about. These are people that you can truly know. You'll know about them and their spouses, maybe their kids. And inside that ring is another fifth, is a group of 50 people that we call good friends. This is the group that you see at a at the market or the wedding and every time you see them you're like, "Dude, we should get together sometime." Right? Anyone? <laughs> Somebody asked me today if we could get together like, for dinner. So I'm in your 50. I love you guys. This is so awesome. So maybe. I'm getting auditioned at dinner. So we're going to find out if I'm one of the 50. But, but inside the 50, right, there's a group of 15 that Dunbar would call best friends. People you actually spend time with. Couples hanging out in groups, playing golf or going to movies, hanging out to watch a Super Bowl game or have ribs and... Hot dogs. Anyways, uh, lastly, there are the five intimates. This is what Dunbar calls. These individuals, you know them, they know you. And the unfortunate reality is more than 60% of our social time, sorry, more than 60% of our social time is devoted to these five closest friends with decreasing amount given to the outgoing circles. Yet, because of the shallowness of social media and our changing culture around us, we have learned that the percentage of Americans who say they have no close friends quadrupled between 1990 and 2020. 54% of Americans, that's more than half of us, say that no one, no one knows them well. 36% of Americans report that they feel lonely frequently, or almost all of the time and that number goes up to 51% for young mothers and wait for it 61% for young adults You know, we can mock our young adults, but they're going through a lot of hard times <laughs> The former Surgeon General of the US Vivek Murthy created waves in his 2023 advisory title Titled our epidemic of loneliness and isolation when he called loneliness. This is the Surgeon General of the United States He called loneliness a social epidemic and the number one, the number one health threat in America. He wrote that the lack of social connection poses a significant risk for individual health and longevity. Loneliness and social isolation increase the risk of premature death by 26 and 29% respectively. More broadly, lacking social connection can increase the risk for premature death as much as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. From a former pack-a-day smoker, that's a whole lot of cigarettes. From just being alone. The health, the negative health um, upon yourself of being alone is like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. In addition, poor or insufficient social connection is associated with an increased risk of disease. There's a 29% increased risk of heart disease. 32% risk of a stroke for those who feel alone and isolated. Socially disconnected. And furthermore, and this is true with a broad stroke paintbrush across all of our culture, we all have seen this. Doesn't matter how old you are. It, there's an increased risk for anxiety and depression, and researchers even showing that dementia is oftentimes tied to this. Perhaps we should just admit that we probably have the wrong idea that we can somehow isolate ourselves and still experience all that life has to offer. Spiritual formation author John Mark Comer says this, we have learned in our incredibly individualistic society the mentality of this march to the beat of your own drum to go and be an original to you-do-you, boo, or to speak your truth and don't let anyone tell you what to do. If you live that way and also try to live in the goodness of a quiet relational life marked by giving and receiving love, it cannot be done. He concludes by saying community of life with others is imperative. This is not a design flaw that humanity must overcome. Our need for other people is actually to our benefit. And all of the introverts went, (laughs) before time existed, before our need to accomplish and check off to-do items before the lane switching race to get to work or get through the grocery checkout. There was a settled and slow example of relationship in God as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Paul J. Pastor poetically explains that every moment there is a reminder that no one is ever alone. And that the community, love, and belonging are not simply cosmic aberrations, but the root nature of our reality. So when we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, in the story of creation, God makes Adam and Eve the Garden of Eden. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Yes, there's a moment where God looks at Adam and says these famous words, "Is not good that man should be what? Alone. God, speaking from a place of personal experience, God, triune, father, son, spirit, God exists in community of himself. And the Creator looked at his lonely creation that he made and he said, It's not good that he be alone. So he makes for him a helper, is what the Bible tells us. And this was more than someone to help him with the chores or on the house or share the bills. Adam, for Adam, this helper unlocked the door to the way to experience the fullness of his being. According to God, living alone is not good for anyone. Full stop. We understand that there is a loneliness that creates in us an ache in our souls that can open us up to God. I experienced it before I was a Christian, and some of you maybe have as well. It's what many of us feel when we say things like this, there has to be more to living than this when we say that about our lives. And so there is a a loneliness that God uses to draw us towards himself. But there also is this epidemic type of loneliness. It's like a blight on our land. And the question that we have to answer is this, is this, is there a practice? Is there something that we can learn from Jesus, our Lord, which allows us to live in this rich web of loving relationships right in the middle where we live in the middle of this epidemic of loneliness? And the answer is a resounding yes. Say it with me now. Yes. Yes, and it's the practice of community. Tyler Vanderweel wrote this in the Harvard Gazette, that there's something about relationships, something about social connectedness, community life, that is so central to what it is to be human, what it means to flourish. I think God would agree. So if we take Robin Dunbar's research findings and compare them to the Bible, we would see a remarkable similarity. For example, Jesus had hundreds and thousands of followers. In the Bible, we read about it called the multitude. These people are on the fringes of the people that he knew. He might recognize a few of them at the Starbucks. I don't know, but he just had fake and move on, right? But he also had a group of 120 disciples who followed him more closely. And inside that 120, there was another 70 inside of that. And then inside of that, we read where he had 12 disciples, close friends that he called himself. And inside of that, there was another smaller group, and yet a more intricate group of three. Peter, James, and John. They were among the earliest of Jesus' disciples. They had been with him for for the longest, been with him from the beginning. And so we might possibly assume that is why Jesus would oftentimes go into places and segregate them alone and leave the others outside. But the Bible actually doesn't tell us why Peter, James, and John are chosen. But they were. They were his inner circle. They were the ones that he surely confided in and vice versa, they confided in him as well. And these three men were were present with Jesus during these special events we read about in scripture. They witnessed Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. Amazing. They accompanied him while he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion, and they were an eyewitness of Jesus' transfiguration that we read about here. Thus, these three eyewitnesses saw Jesus' greatest moments of glory, and we could argue, even his darkest trials. They were his closest friends. There's even a moment, um, I forgot about this, but I think about it now, I didn't write it down, here we go. Uh, there's a moment where Jesus is actually hanging on the cross and John, is I think we're told, is the only one of the disciples actually went to, the, to the, the hill where Jesus was crucified. All the other disciples had scattered, but John was there. And there's a moment when Jesus looks down at John, one of his closest friends, and says to his mother, who's also there, Jesus' mother Mary, he says, um, John, this is your mother, Mary, this is your son. Almost to say, I'm leaving, I need you to take care of her. Like, you do that with the people you're closest to, right? You do that with people you trust with your parents. So we see here that Peter's timeline, if we, if we read up to this transfiguration moment, he's had a quick succession of ups and downs. He declares, Jesus is the Christ, go Peter, then demands that Jesus will not die in Jerusalem, right? If Peter can stop it, he'll stop it. And then Jesus rebukes Peter and calls him what? Satan, I like to call my best friend Satan all the time. (laughs) All that to say, lots of crazy ups and downs. Which maybe would point to this for something to think about. Some people think that after you're a follower of Jesus for some time, things just smooth out over time. You think you can get a handle on this Christian life and you can turn the seatbelt sign off, (laughs) right? Move around the cabin of your life. Boom, all of a sudden, turbulence, all of a sudden, a doctor's call, all of a sudden, a pink slip, dear John, all the things that can change your life, and the turbulence comes in and throws you around. That was Peter's life. And if we're honest, that is our life too. Many of us can feel isolated when we make mistakes. We hide them because we're so embarrassed by them. And to make sure no one finds out about them, we pull away from others. But, what if we stop? (laughs) What if we stop trying to live a life of no more sinning and no more mistakes, and instead, stop trying to live a life of secrets? You hear the difference? Let's worry less about getting everything right and worry more about being known by others in a form of intimate community. And this requires what James calls confessional relationships. These are deep relationships with a few people. They're close friends that we share our secrets with. And a small, intimate circle of relationships, which God designed us to need, is used by him to shape us into the person that God intends us to be. This story, the transfiguration, I think, is... a shows us the power of those intimate relationships. Peter, James, and John, they're close with Jesus, and he invites them into an experience that will shape the rest of their lives. So that's my intro. You guys ready? (laughs) Let's get started. Holy cow, I don't have any time left. All right, let's go back to Luke 9, verse 28, and just work through a couple of things that stuck out to me here. Verse 28, we see Peter, James, and John being segregated from the others. And they go up an unnamed mountain. The other gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, say it's a high mountain. Luke even leaves that detail out. They just go up on a mountain. And, and this is a common theme in the Bible when we read of theophanic or uh, theophanies where they would encounter God Um, they would oftentimes go up on mountains. So it's a a place of divine revelation, so to speak. So this is a common thing. When we see them go up a mountain, we should think, aha, something cool is going to happen. But think of all the times the mountains are spoken of in Scripture. Moses meets God on a mountain and receives the Ten Commandments. Elijah has this powerful experience defeating the the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And interestingly enough, I learned this week uh, that... One scholar actually thinks that that the Garden of Eden was on a mountain, and he says that because it says in in the creation narrative that all the rivers flow out of Eden, which would be a high spot, right? I don't know, it just made, whatever, that's me, I'm nerding out, but all that to say um, there was a mountain involved. But he doesn't name the mountain. He doesn't give the location of this divine encounter. It seems to be less important to what Luke is trying to convey. Just that they had an encounter with God, less on where it is. And that's possible because sometimes when people find out cool things happen where God is, people like to go back to those places and have the same experience over and over and over again. They somehow call it a special spot. we got to go to that place. That's where God moved two years ago. we got to keep doing it like this because that's how God did it five years ago. But in this encounter, we, it's a mystery to where it happened. God does this cool thing, and we don't know about it from then on out. Know this. We do not need to travel to a place to encounter God. Say yes if you're listening. You do not need to go to a place to encounter God. However, Mexican joints are at the top of the list. I'm just saying. <laughs> There is truly no Mecca for us in Christianity and nor a religion that demands a pilgrimage to a place. God sent us his son. He has come here. Our journey, if there is one, then is to know him, to understand him, to talk to him as if he's one of our close friends through prayer. Speaking of which, notice how praying makes a mention here in verse 28. Prayer is mentioned twice here in this powerful little narrative. It is mentioned back in verse 18 when Jesus was praying, then he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And there's this divine disclosure when Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. Luke desires his reader, which is us, to understand the important role that prayer has in revelation and understanding of God. But hear me, it is not explicitly stated in the Bible for us. We wish it were. We wish the Bible would just say, if you want to know, you got to pray. But it doesn't. But the stories are replete with examples of men and women praying and God showing up. And we have to be attuned to that. If we truly want to understand the ways of God, then we need to pray. And we have to trust that in the pages of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, like a a wilderness guide, will reveal partially overgrown trails of the direction through which he wants us to go. He'll point his finger at a word or a phrase, and our focus becomes acute, and we begin to consider and to ponder. And so Luke mentions prayer multiple times, and we need to be people who pray. I'll move on. Verse 29, Jesus was praying, and, and while he's praying, his face changes. What? His clothes become dazzling white. This would have immediately reminded all of those present of Moses' face shining with a bright light when he received the tablets on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. He'd met with God, he comes down, the people are freaking out because his face is glowing. You can read about it in Exodus 34. It's a fun story. But know this, Moses' face shone because it reflected God's glory. Jesus' face is shining because he is God's glory. Matthew and Luke referred to Jesus' face shining like the sun. The sun radiates light. The moon reflects. Like Jesus is the sun. Moses was the moon. Moses' glory came from the outside. Jesus came from the inside. Anyone? All right, okay. And it says his clothes became dazzling bright. Bright as a flash of Lightning. Verse 30, moving through quickly. And behold, two men were talking with him, a guy named Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. That word is actually Exodus. The Greek word would be Exodus, which Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Notice the visual language that Luke is using to describe this entire scene. Verse 30, the word translated behold means to look, look, peer into. I want you to see this. In the next verse, he uses the words they saw All of this is to instruct the reader that this was a physical, real-world transformation that they experienced in Jesus. It was not a trance or vision or some type of group hallucination. Peter will write of this experience later in his life, in his letter to young churches in Asia Minor. He rebukes those people who are arguing that the experience of Jesus is all just made up and make-believe or whatever. He says in 2 Peter verse 1, verse 16, he says this We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he says, We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is God the Father saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He says, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven and we were with him on that holy mountain. Peter's writing about this experience. I mentioned earlier that this intimate moment with God through Jesus changed him. As the young churches were being Criticized and mocked and persecution rising against them, many people began to fall away from the faith because they thought this stuff was just made up. These are some smart guys with a cool story trying to lure people away from the real religion or whatever. And Peter says, hogwash, that's silliness. I saw it with my own eyes on the mountain, heard the voice of God speak. You, I love you, need an encounter with God. (laughs) I am handsome. I agree. These are the jokes, people. <laughs> and yes, I'm fun to listen to. Say yes. I don't know, maybe. But I can't have an experience of God for you. You need an experience with the Lord. You need something that you can sort of hang your coat on so when life does get hard, turbulence does come into your life, you're not shaken because you know Jesus is real. He's not just a fable and a story that that one guy gets up and talks about every once in a while. Yeah? (laughs) Two other people make an appearance here. Verse 30, Moses and Elijah. When uh, Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? they responded, some people say you're Moses. Some people say, or some people say a prophet. Some people say Elijah. Well, right now we're seeing he ain't Moses or Elijah because they're standing right next to him. And Jesus is standing there. He is different. And they're talking to Jesus about what he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem. This is the words that, that Luke uses. The ministry in upper Galilee, where Jesus had been doing some ministry with the disciples is coming to a close, and a march towards Jerusalem is about to begin. This new revelation will add tension to Luke's story as we read it, as we follow Jesus, knowing that he's going to be persecuted, that he's going to suffer, and he will die at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. And now he sets his face upon Jerusalem from this point forward, and this is where we're headed. And now when we read Luke, we're going, gosh, what happens next? What happens next? There is a stopwatch that has started on his life, and it is clicking seconds away. It's the tension of one of those TV shows we watch where we want them to cut the red wire before the bomb explodes. Anyways, this is the part of his departure. He's going to do something. The Exodus story in the Old Testament was when God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. And that word Exodus, again, is the same word used here when they speak of Jesus' departure. His Exodus is going to cut loose the chains of sin and the shackles that bind all of humanity. The work that Christ is going to do is a greater work than Moses did, who released only a few people. Jesus himself can release the entirety of the world from the clutches of sin. Yes, yes. And this is the work that Luke is insisting we pay attention to. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. His exodus is about to begin. And so our minds flip. Oh my goodness, God is going to do something amazing in this story. Verse 32, Peter and those who were with him, they were heavy with sleep. (laughs) What a jerk. Anyways, so they become fully awake when they see Jesus in his glory and the two men standing with him. Verse 33, and as the men were parting away from him, Peter says to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Napping, whatever. Let us make three tents, one for you and for Moses and for Elijah. And Luke adds this funny parenthetical thought. Peter didn't know what he's talking about. You ever wake up half asleep and you have no idea what's happening? That's this moment. There's all kinds of reasons why he wanted to build tents. I'm not going to go into that. We have a lot of conjecture. It doesn't matter. Peter didn't know what he was talking about. But when they are fully awake, we could actually see that they, they have experienced something that God has done. It was nighttime. It seems as if they had spent the whole night on the mountain. They're tired, of course. And it just caused them to be drowsy and tired. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to wind down here. I'm skipping a whole bunch of stuff that I think is cool. I'd send you my sermon if you want it. Just give me, let me know. Um, Anyone? Anyone? But just know this, that it costs us to follow Jesus. It just does. It it takes energy. We have to burn calories. Like some of you right now could probably stay a little more awake. I'm just saying. Like he can't really see my eyes from there. Uh Yeah, I can see you sleeping somebody could wake up my dad, that'd be great. I appreciate that. <laughs> Wayne, are you awake? Yeah, he's a... Hi, hi how are you? <laughs> but know this, when people choose to follow Jesus or become a Christian or whatever we want to call it, it's saying that we want Jesus to shape us, to, to shape our spiritual being, to have spiritual formation in our lives. A less popular term that we use for this spiritual formation is discipleship. It's just what we're saying. Like, we want to be shaped and changed, and it costs us. So, I don't know if you know this. We have a group of people that meet here every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. downstairs by the cafe, and they go through a little book. There's a little book club, right? Brett, am I right? And Terry. And um, it's part of their discipleship. They want to come together, and they're reading a book together, and they're bouncing ideas off of one another. And they're reading a book by pastor uh, and author Eugene Peterson right now called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And it's a classical book on spiritual formation. It has been an inspiration to many Christians for decades. If you're interested in it, you should join the group. It's like you don't have to pay or nothing. Just show up, bring your coffee. They'll make a place for you. Join them. They would love to have you, right, Brett? Terry, would you make room for them? Bart, would you give up your seat? Bart, wake up. Bart, would you give up your seat? (laughs) Bart would even give up his seat for you. And the book's central theme that Peterson speaks about is that discipleship is a lifelong journey. It's a long journey of obedience to God. And he argues that obedience is not just about following sets of rules, but about developing a deep, personal, intimate relationship with God through his son Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit. In this book, um, Peterson uses the metaphor of a pilgrimage to illustrate the point, suggesting that Christian, the Christian life is just a gradual ascent into God's presence. So we're like, or unlike tourists who stop to visit an attractive site and then move on, we're more like these pilgrims who just move consistently, always in the same direction, always trying to find God in our life, yeah? But to do so, we must awaken. You must awaken from your spiritual slumber. I can't do it for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. You have to do this. And it's crazy because in our world, there are so many ways that we can distract ourselves or numb ourselves from the emptiness that we find in life. The world around us, we might even argue, is actually spiritually forming us too. But it's not forming us into victors who overcome shackles of shame and sin. Instead, the world tries to get us to forget all of the terrible acts that we commit, all of the sin in our life, all of the shame that we have or whatever. And they just try to get us to isolate ourselves. The Christian life could be maybe even explained or described as a deforming for us or reforming us into the people God wants us to be. So we untie ourselves from the untruth that the world is constantly giving us, and we turn to the truth, capital T truth, that is who? Jesus. I'm cooking now. Verse 34. They're saying these things, a cloud comes over them. God says, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. I'm going quickly. Are you guys keeping up? Yep. This cloud was what led the people out of um, Egypt during the Exodus. And now a cloud's going to lead them again. And this time the voice from God, the Father tells them that Jesus is the way. Let's be clear on that point. God wants us to hear it. He wants us to see it. Jesus transfigures in front of them. There's no mistake. Jesus is the one, the Messiah, the chosen one. In this world, in our vernacular, there are many paths that lead to God, but only one that leads to the real God, and that is in Jesus. There's so many different ways that you can try to be spiritual, but only one will bring eternal life and hope. There's so many ways to try to discipline and white knuckle the things out of your life so you can live as a better person. There's only one way that can actually change you from the inside. That is the work that Jesus Christ has done. He has made a way to rebuild this from the inside out. Everything else is effort from the outside coming in. But God wants to change you from the inside out and he's already done so on a cross, on a hill called Calvary where Jesus, his son died on that cross for the sins of the world. And his body was thrown into a grave. And three days later, he was victorious over sin and death and even the grave. And he lives in that. And by faith, we believe that story. And the Bible tells us that in faith, we are also made new in that. So we have changed. And now there's a little bitty heart that pumps the, the lifeblood of God inside of us. Some of us have been Christians for a few years, and you got just this little bitty heart that's pumping hard for God. But I'm telling you, God's life is pumping through you. Feed it. <laughs> Work it out. Read something. Pray something. Don't wave with your middle fingers. You pass people on the highway because you're driving too slow because that's not what Jesus would do. Pray for those idiots, those people, I mean, that just don't understand <laughs> how important you are and how you need to be somewhere. There's just something inside of us where God has shipped, changed us and then. It um, and the world just wants to tell us it's just emotion. It's just some uh, neurochemical thing, Chris. Right? We're talking about it's just some. It's like a, a physiological thing that happened. It's not really a spiritual thing. And I'm telling you, it's both. God is doing something. And sometimes you feel it in your body. Sometimes you just have to hold on by faith that God is doing it. When he says, when God says, "Listen to my son," he means this in the biblical sense, which means not just to hear but to obey, obey my son, listen to him. And when the silence returned, Jesus was all alone on the mountain. Moses gone, Elijah gone, the law of Moses gone, the prophetic hope that one day a Messiah will come gone. It's all realized in Christ Jesus. This mountaintop experience of Jesus, it wasn't just for him, it was for his inner circle, for Peter, James, and John. And since it's contained in the Bible, I have to think that it's also a blueprint for all of us. That we might not all have mountaintop moments, but we can all build our own mountain community. <laughs> Weird choice of words, right? But we can all build these little places where we can work together and learn to listen and, and serve God and, and encourage one another and stop faking it till you make it type relationships. Like, I have those relationships. How are you? Fine. I'm good. Only a few people know I really struggled with anxiety this past week. Well, not all of you know. (laughs) That was weird. (laughs) (laughs) That, That didn't play very well. But I only told one or two people. God can transform our lives. And he can combat this epidemic of loneliness and isolation in our world. So I want you to consider how God is using this place. I'm closing here, this church. How is God using this place, wait for it, in your life? What is it to you? Is it just a, I I gotta be careful, I wanna encourage, but... May this church and, the, and and what I desire it to be and the leaders together, we pray, and we always want this, is we want this to be a place where you encounter the love of Jesus as expressed through his people. I want this place to be more to you than just an hour and a half on Sunday. I want to be a place where if you feel discouraged, you come in, you leave on Sunday refreshed. I want it to be a place that you take advantage of that prayer room. You, you have... <laughs> I wish you knew the stories of lives that are being transformed through the prayers that happen while we're eating bagels downstairs. While we're chasing kids with chocolate icing on their face and, and people who are dealing with some really wild things and we're praying for them and the stories are coming back that the changes are happening in their life. How is God using this place for you? Maybe he's not. Maybe it's a sneak in, sneak is the wrong word, but come in kind of right before open, right? Right before John takes the stage and tells you to stand up and repeat after me or whatever. Right, before all that, maybe you're just like first ones out the door. As soon as the thing, the door opens, deuces. I got jalapeno poppers to make for the big game tonight. <laughs> it's a real thing. It doesn't have to be. It's very possible, and I say this not hyperbolically, I mean seriously, it's quite possible that God has placed the very answer to the things that you're dealing with in this room. There's another person who's gone through that exact thing and God built their faith in it and they can pray for you and help you in what you're doing. There there are so many stories that can change our lives should we listen to the faith that's in them. How is God using this place for you? You don't have to walk your Christian life alone. You can choose to walk it in community and discover the strength and the love that can come through that. Uh, Remember this, God exists in community and he created us in his image. It's, it's hardwired into our DNA. And um, it's hard for some of us, introverts and shy people. I get it. But it's the way. It's the way. So, are we good? <laughs> are we good? <laughs> uh, we'll see. We'll see. i to pray for us. Would you stand up for me? Shake it off, right? Hmm. It's always that moment when you leave the nice restaurant and if you're like me, you have your napkin on your lap. You're trying to eat clean, but there's always crumbs and stuff that sort of gather on the napkin. And then when you... You stand up, like all of that stuff just hits the floor. You know what I'm talking about? And you feel bad for the server, it's gotta come after you and clean up all your crumbs. When you stood up just a moment ago, like that picture hit my mind, that all of the things that sort of came in with you about the cares of this world, oh my goodness all of the issues, all of the, um, the things that have the issues and concerns that have barnacled themselves to you. As you walked in this morning, when you stood up, I just sense the Lord is just releasing them. Just let them hit the floor. We've got custodians that'll come through and sweep it up for you. You don't have to carry them out with you. just what we do we stand and we obey and we follow God and just like that he changes things in our lives you mean I don't have to pray real hard I don't have to work real? no you just have to stand up and follow him you mean he can actually untie things from my life I just have to just yes yes that's what we're saying that's what he does that's who he is So we hold out our hands now. Lord, we thank you for the teachings today. We thank you that you open our minds and our hearts to your word. We're grateful for our time, wait for it, together with one another. God, thank you for my church. Thank you for these people in this room. There are people in this room who have made such an impact on my life. God, I thank God for you. God, as we leave this place and move on to fun times tonight, use your Holy Spirit as a guide and lead us into meaningful connections, ones that can nurture us and strengthen our souls, Lord. Open our eyes to those who are in need near us. Maybe we're the one to help them today. So give us courage to reach out to them in love. God bless our journey and guide us towards relationships that fulfill your purpose in our lives. And everyone says, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to support you and have you be a part of our community. So please check out the Church at homepage at rendicator.org. There you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, and even contribute to the growth of the church through online giving. Or you can come see us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. We can't wait to see you.